Well, Carol Payton has been on the trail of the money. I'm not sure that she's necessarily found it. Carol Payton is editor-at-large at Business 24. She's been looking for money. Have you found money, Carol Payton? Hi, Bruce. I'm not sure if you can hear me. I can. Oh, good. You keep on fading in and out. Um, I apologize. I shall be be better behaved. I didn't get that. I didn't get what you... (laughs) If you asked me a question, I didn't get it. That's fine. I am all focused now. Um, tell me about uh, tell me about what's happened to the money that was promised for the just energy transition. There were meant to be billions of dollars that were going to be cheaply available to us. This seems like a derater era project that has faded into distant memory. Well, what's happened is that you know this was a world first. It was a great thing, uh, heralded as a great thing that you know the developed world is now going to assist the developing world to um, transition um, from coal to cleaner energy. And this is what all this this deal was about. And it started off at about $8.5 billion, and that was a combination of grants and loans and other things. And and so what's happened now is that most of the donor countries, well, the donor countries being the lending countries, because most of it is loans, concessional loans, most of the donor countries and governments and institutions want that money to go into ESCOM because they think that that is where they, they're going to get bang for their buck. So they think if their money goes into expanding ESCOM's transmission grid, which can then allow more renewable energy to, to connect to the grid, they will be doing a good service for climate change and the world. Which is yeah. true. I mean, I think that is where they would get the most bang for the buck. But the problem is now is that ESCOM doesn't want that money right now. They don't. They 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 say, well, we can't build it grid any faster than we're already building it, and and we've got enough money right now. And if we take any more money because this is a loan, um, we're going to have more debt, and we and we don't want more debt. So it's kind of really a uh, a, a, a ridiculous situation where we're being offered this money now and and we can't really take advantage of it. It's weird, isn't it? It's, so it's not an Eskom blockage. This is a National Treasury blockage. This is National Treasury, which has got the monumental task of balance budget and it's got nine days to see whether or not there are any rabbits alive to put inside the hat to pull out on budget day. National Treasury is looking at this and saying, we've got a fiscal crisis. We're on a fiscal cliff. We've got a really big problem here. We can't take on any new debt. And that's encumbering ESCOM from doing what it needs to do to become more sustainable. No, it's not a National Treasury problem. National Treasury... So so the problem lies at ESCOM. So... Okay. So um, the international partners group who have pledged all this money have been under the impression that the national treasury won't allow this money to flow to ESCOM because of ESCOM's debt relief conditions. That is not the case. The national treasury says very, very clearly, no, um, if ESCOM wants to borrow money, it can. And, and all it needs is to get permission. Need to get permission from us, and, and we'll, you know, and from the finance minister, and 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 they can do it. Um, but the truth is that ESCOM doesn't want to do that. They don't want to take on more debt. They are in the business of cleaning up their balance sheet at the moment, so they don't want to take on more debt. And secondly, they say, well, you know, 
the industry uh, the, the 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 industry that that builds these construction lines and trans you know tr- uh, transformers and all of these things um can't build any faster than it's already building so we don't need any more money thanks very much for now you know for the next for the foreseeable future it's a weird situation to be in, isn't it? I mean, here's the blockage, therefore, then, is sitting within ESCOM, but we then sit with a polluting national energy provider that can't provide the energy that we need. It's stuck with a massive debt problem, which is self-imposed. I mean, it was created only by the various management teams over the last decade and a bit within ESCOM that has burned through many billions of dollars worth of diesel over that time and has has not done the projects properly and has not built ESCOM's, uh, South Africa's, you know, not service South Africa's power needs adequately. And, And now they sit with the opportunity... Of, of a deal that was agreed at COP26 in 2021, and it's not going to help them at all. I mean, do they need... It's not going to help the, them the, at the all. It's not going to re- help us at all. So, so, no. so you know, you know the, 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 the obvious solution then is, is there must be an innovative financing mechanism which can, which can make use of this money um, in, in, in a constructive way, in a way that benefits ESCOM and benefits the country and achieves what the lending countries want. But um, and at instance, you know, I suggested to Eskom, why couldn't you some of this taken debt on to to do this expansion of the transmission um, um, system? You've taken this debt on prior to the debt conditions being imposed. Why couldn't you swap some of the expensive de- debt for some cheaper debt? And that sort of capacity to think like, well, how can we innovate a solution around that? seems to be absent in both ESCOM and government. People are really, they couldn't, they, they just can't get their head around. Well, let's, let's find a solution. And I'm, and I'm sure that if you've got some bankers together, they would come up with a solution in, in five minutes. So often when the problem is staring you in the face and you're busy putting out fires on every front, the last thing you can do necessarily is apply your mind and think to some very complex issues here. Um, and, and so how then... I mean, get the bankers in to come and help structure the debt and try and get things restructured properly. Well, is this a political issue as well, Carol, in terms of this is a Derater thing. Derater was pushing for the clean energy transition. Actually, um, it's, it's a bit pie in the sky, perhaps, for the current um, management of ESCOM, and, and they're quite happy just to let it, uh, let it slide away. No, I don't think so. I don't think so, because there, there is that problem, but that is a separate problem. There is a problem of, 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 of government and ANC saying, well, you know, we said we're going to retire these power stations, but actually now we don't want to now. And um, that's a separate problem. Um, this problem is, you know, the government, Cyril Ramaphosa, everybody, you know, lauded this deal. Cyril Ramaphosa was there, you know, in, in Glasgow on the world stage, shaking everybody's hands and saying thank you for the money. And, and so... And so that's not that's not the blockage, you know. The the, the blockage, and, and I'm sure they want it, this deal to be a success because it was the first global deal, and it needs to demonstrate some success. And if we want to ever get any more concessional finance um, for climate-related stuff, we need to actually show that we can make use of it. So it's important that the deal is is, is a success. I just think we it's somewhere we lack capacity to. No. To, 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 to,
Peyton, thank you very much indeed. Right Marge at New uh, 24, 24 Peyton's. Thank you, Carol, very much indeed. City of the issues is huge, and whether there is the capacity, the desire, the will um, to actually implement some quite complex plans in order to fix the issues is yet to be seen. Well, we haven't looked at our sovereign credit ratings for quite a while because it's not something that's in your face the whole time. Uh, it does have an effect on everything from the amount it costs government to borrow money, which in turn has an impact on government finances and the amount of tax you pay, as well as the value of the shares that make up your retirement fund, your investment portfolio eventually. And a poor rating, a poor country rating like ours, means that lots of investors either divest or would not dream of putting money into an environment which they don't believe to be secure. Now I see South Africa's insurers of renewable energy projects could lose out on 6 billion rand over the next five years because of that credit rating. It's yet another issue with which we need to contend. Sophie Maggs is the head of renewable energy and infrastructure at Crawfield Duggle. Uh, Sophie, please explain the, the extent of this problem to me in small words and uh, phrases of no more than three syllables. <laughs> Hi, Bruce. Um, thank you. Yes, it is a it is a big problem. Um, what this effectively means is that South Africa's insurance market, who is otherwise capable of underwriting renewable energy projects, is disqualified from participating in the lion's share of these of these projects because of South Africa's credit rating and the lending community's appetite to take on insurance from insurers who don't have a rated capacity. Okay, so I mean, what does it mean then, not only for the insurers, but for the country as a whole? Well, for the country as a whole, what it means is that of an insurance pool of about a billion rand, only around 15% of that is actually being held in the country itself. And the majority of that potential premium pool is being sent offshore um, and going through the reinsurance market to international insurers. And so the country is losing out on a lot of um, insurance premium taxes, jobs, and, and all the benefits that come with that. So our insurance companies can't capitalize on a massive market opportunity because the country's credit rating is as poor as it is, and yet another body blow, I suppose, for a South African industry. That, that's right. And we're talking about South African insurance companies that are otherwise very sound. We see strong balance sheets, strong solvency ratios, capacity and the appetite to take on projects of this nature but because of the because of the, the credit rating uh this precludes them from participating in in these sorts of projects sophie thanks very much indeed sophie mags is the head of renewable energy and infrastructure the money show the this evening on the money show to Wayne McCurry, we go, and I'm looking at the currency this evening, 19.10 to the dollar, 24.04 to the pound, having a look at the currency also against the euro at 20.46. Today's American inflation number, Wayne McCurry, once again, a reminder that markets are often overtaken by wishful thinking and can overreact in the short term. And when things don't quite go the way that they've decided they should, they you know, get into a bit of a huff, and that's what's happened today. Exactly correct, Bruce. I mean, I must say, when you consider the percentage increase they've seen in interest rates in America, both long and short term, to me, it's actually quite astonishing how strong the economy is, how strong the jobs numbers are, and that inflation is coming in higher than forecast, because 
I mean, we've never seen such a marked increase in interest rates. I mean, for example, the U.S. long bond has come up from, say, call it 0.6 or 1% to well over 4. I mean, that's, that's up fourfold. That's like our mortgage bond going from, I don't know, just to use round numbers, 10% to 40%. And we all know what effect that would have in South Africa, and yet the U.S., They've taken it in their stride, quite frankly. Look, I know a lot of their mortgage bonds are fixed, but everything reprices eventually. And it's been an astonishing increase in interest rates. Therefore, you know, the debt burden post the global financial crisis, people just didn't have that much debt. Corporates just didn't have that much debt because they've all been able to weather quite a dramatic increase in interest rates. And the economy still going quite well and jobs are going quite well and inflation staying higher than what was expected. Look, inflation is still down materially from the high we saw, uh, you know, last year, but it's not falling as quickly as people expect. So it's sticky. And the moment that happens, emerging markets take a beating, emerging market currencies take a beating, and the own share markets take a beating. You know, at least we can say we're not... You know, we, you can't in any stretch of the imagination say, say that our shares are expensive. But, you know, they still came off, and you can see it immediately that number came out. The market fell in the rand weekend. Yeah, it fell very, very shortly and continues to come under pressure this evening. And, yeah, just because inflation is coming down slowly than expected, in the United States has locations absolutely everywhere. Uh, the cash build trading update today, yes. long way away from the excitement and the boom of the COVID renovation expansion that that happened, but it seems to have perked up from the, the slump that we sort of saw in 21, 22. Things looking up a little bit for cash build? It's a little bit better. Look, it's not a good trading update, but it's certainly better. Cash build's a great, great company, uh, but of course, a lot of people you know, had the most wonderful time during, you know, during uh, the COVID when the when, when the restrictions were lifted and, and 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 you were sick of being moaned at about how the kitchen cupboard is creaking and how this isn't working and you just went on this DIY boom and this construction boom and then of course they all uh, the letdown following that but yeah look it's not it's not it's not as bad as previous updates because I mean you know builders. Anyone involved in the building industry really had has had a tough last year or two. It most certainly has, but nice to see that there's a bit of a turnaround happening there. And it's also quite an interesting time for We Buy Cars to be coming to yes. the market. We Buy Cars being spun out of transaction capital. They came out with an update. There's going to be a private placement of shares. There are also yes. going to be um, shares listed on the JSE and giving an opportunity to ordinary investors to buy into what is an astonishing business. I wonder... Whether or not the price is appropriate, though, have you had time to to get out your abacus and and, and calculate? Well, look, when you have a look at all of that, they still say okay, the the transaction capital share price is up, but when they do a sum of the parts valuation, they still say there's a thirty six percent discount to the so, transaction capital share price when they actually did it, and I don't think it's an unreasonable valuation. They're placing on WeBuy cars. Of course, the market itself will determine what's the right value for WeBuy cars when it lists. 
but it doesn't look it doesn't look too high. And of course, they're also doing a share issue. So in other words, Rebar Cars is taking on some debt because they've got cash flow, and then all of that is ultimately goes back to uh, to transaction capital, and they're going to see a significant reduction in their debt. I mean, a significant reduction. Um, whether the underlying businesses look, we know that debt collection business is, is actually quite a nice business, but of course everything's about SA Taxi. Yeah, SA Taxi, of course, a company that is, uh, it, you know, transaction capital became famous for SA yes. Taxi, but a lot of people have uh, started to object to the funding mechanisms and the the, the levels of funding uh, required to buy these vehicles and the requirements on the taxi owners, of course, and so it's a bit of pushback yeah. for transaction capital. How is Goldfields doing in what is really a globally competitive mining industry? It doesn't mine anywhere other than South Deep in South Africa anymore, but it has expanded. Yeah. It's global footprint. It has enormously. And, you know, when you think about it, they came up with a trading update and, you know, their shares were, well, the gold shares in total were the ones that came off the most today. Because when you look at this, there was quite a substantial increase in their costs. You know, the production was okay, I suppose. But the point is, Bruce, you're talking about five-year high, absolute record gold prices, and they're not making more profits. You know, market didn't like that. Eh? And I know no, they've got a whole range of new mines they've taken up and there's a whole lot of qualifications and adjustments and stuff in there. But when you're sitting at, you know, over $2,000 per ounce uh, and you're not making more profits, it doesn't look good. Wayne McCurry, thank you. Wayne is from Wealth and Investments at First National Bank. Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. Well, let's talk about World Radio Day. It's what we're doing this evening. So we're talking to you, what you're listening to. And radio is a wonderful medium, and it was supposed to be dead by now. Video was supposed to kill it. Wasn't that right, Freddie Mercury? Um, that video would kill the radio star. But certainly, um, radio has boomed, not only in South Africa since the advent of democracy, but it has boomed across the African continent. And in many countries around the world, radio, despite increased competition from online platforms from all kinds, of corners of the world, radio seems to have weathered the storm better than most media, traditional media outlets, but let's put it that way. Um, And it's been an astonishing uh, success story in terms of Radio Day. Um, So let's talk this evening to uh, a man who knows all about radio, and that is Tim Zunkel. Tim is creative consultant at... uh, Media Works, I can't read it on my screen, I'm terribly sorry. Tim, it's a little bit too far away for me this evening. Uh, but certainly on World Radio Day, as we have a look at the, at the state of the industry uh, at Media Heads 360, Tim Zunkel, talk to me about the evolution of radio and, and why it has stood the test of time. Hi, Bruce. Thanks for the opportunity. What a pleasure to talk radio on World Radio Day. Uh, just a quick correction, I think. Uh, Freddie Mercury was Radio Gaga. And the buggles were oh, killing yes, the radio yes, star. Yes. So John John Perlman's already shouting at me here, Tim. And, and, and so John Perlman's already shouted at me. He's of an era that remembers this very well. Chris Stewart, one of our market commentators this evening, has also corrected me. So one of the wonderful things about radio, and I think you will agree, is the immediacy of the medium, that when some twit on the radio goes and says something fundamentally flawed, they can be corrected in an instant, not only by their guest, but by those who are listening as well. That's one of the reasons I love it so much, and I'm going 
to just quietly hang my head in shame. But it's a great medium, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And I think a part of what you've mentioned now is the immediacy is part of its evolution, you know. So from a technical perspective, um, for the end, the end consumer, the listener, radio really hasn't changed altogether that much. And I think that's part of its success story. So if your grandmother bought the transistor radio in the 60s, there's a good chance someone could still be using it today. So the end user is relatively cheap, whereas a lot of new media products aren't reliant on data and they're reliant on a bunch of other things. Um, so I think that's important. I think the other thing with radio is, Bruce, and it, it's something that you deal with on a daily basis. You know, people will tell you that a, a picture paints a thousand words. But in radio, one word paints a thousand pictures or 10,000 pictures or 20,000 pictures. Um, and each person who consumes what we do in this medium gets a different idea and a different understanding of the things that we try and create. So I think it's a, it's a hugely creative medium. Um, it moves very quickly. People listen quicker than they see. So we have that to our advantage. And I think the other thing is, you know, you said radio is under pressure and it's dying. Until the world stops listening, radio still has a place. Has radio come under pressure? Absolutely. I've worked in this business for 30 years. And in the 30 years since I started, radio was always under pressure. Cassettes, CD players, computers, MP3s, uh, Donald Trump, you name it. There's always been something which has been a challenge. But radio is a friendly medium. And it plays nicely with other mediums. So if we, if we take into consideration the Internet and everything it's done with social media, radio plays well with social media. We're not trying to uh, deny the fact that social media has got a great space um, in the audience ability to consume content and in the way that they entertain themselves. But radio is in that space, um, and, and it, it plays nicely. Radio plays nicely with television. It plays nicely with online Radio is not in competition with any of these things. Um, and I think that's why it also has a, a beautiful story to tell and a, a, a beautiful future ahead of it. And it's, it's that ability to connect to people across vast distances. I recall as a kid listening to the radio and listening to the Watergate scandal playing out and not understanding a word of it, but being captivated by the magic of the moment, the magic of the fact that there was this big thing happening in a place called the White House to a guy called Richard Nixon, who'd obviously done something terrible and was in huge trouble. I was a little guy, but I just recall it so clearly and just having this picture of the world being formed in my in my little head at the time. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, in, in the way that you recount that, I remember in 92, being in high school, listening to a guy called David Blood, on 702 when they were still broadcasting from Karankua. And, you know, those are vivid memories of people talking like deep politics for a guy who was like 13 or 14. It was life-altering. But sat in front of my blaster that had a double tap, and it's something which I enjoy. And, you know, I've come back from West Africa. I was working with radio professionals there for the last two weeks. And this thing that you described that we have, they have it too. They they are, are... beautiful storytellers. They've got communities who require a lot of news and information, uh, and they've got wonderful stories to tell. And, you know, from the smallest scale to the biggest scale, if it's ECOWAS radio that's broadcasting over the whole of West Africa or Radio Turban in Gabunga province, there's this magic that lives within these cells of community radio stations. And you can't replicate that ability to connect and to connect human beings the way that radio does.
Tim, thank you so much for sharing with us this evening. Tim Zunkel, who is creative consultant at, uh, who is a radio consultant. It was wonderful. Thank you very much indeed. Telling the story about Macquarie Bank and one of its big traders, Nico Kane, who is stepping back uh, after being paid 75% more than his boss last year. Um, that certainly is a corporate culture within Macquarie. Corporate cultures are very specific. Corporate cultures are very um, died in the, in the wool in some areas. But not everybody's a fan of corporate culture. My producers today were wondering whether or not there's a global distaste growing for corporate culture. Andrew Woodburn, who's managing director of Amrop, Woodburn man who puts people into cultures all the time and helps people identify and nurture their cultures. I wonder whether the sort of growing taste for culture is universal. Woodburn? Uh, Bruce and to the listeners, I mean, I think that in this world of the developed market, there may well be a trend in corporate culture, uh, but certainly in our environment, uh, I would say that it's a necessary evil. The difference, of course, Bruce, is that people in, the, in emerging markets are far more committed in potentially a recessionary environment to bring home the bacon. Whereas offshore, you've got advanced culture, you've got sophisticated social services, sometimes you have generational wealth. And so there we've got trends of youngsters not wanting to be married, not wanting to have children, and in fact can form a group which might think, well, I'll only work to a level that I think is what I'm paid for, which is not essentially a super performance mindset. And you and I, Bruce, have discussed this. As company size grows, as competition grows, then that super performance mindset is more required to deliver the results. I mean, Bruce, you can talk, you know, you've interviewed them from around the world. South African executives are well known for being performance orientated, high work ethic and competitiveness. So, yes, I think there are pockets who would challenge the corporate culture, but I think in our country, less so. I wonder if it's different at executive level to people who are perhaps starting out at work, people who are feeling a little bit vulnerable in the workspace, people who move into the workspace and find the performance culture of an organization perhaps a little bit too demanding, where there's not an extension on a university assignment, or there is quite a ferocious culture of accountability, perhaps. Maybe this is more of a a younger person's thing. Yeah, I buy into that. I think the youth, certainly the educated youth, have got options. And as I said, when you're young, you can conquer the world. Uh, maybe you want to be an entrepreneur, but that's no easier than a corporate environment. But let's not tell anybody that, Mr. Whitfield. Um, nope. And so maybe when you're under 40, uh, you may well sort of feel that you either want more lifestyle balance or you want more decisions and maybe a slightly more hedonistic in terms of enjoyment approach to things. But of course, as you know, Bruce, you're a father, so am I. Uh, when little people come along, suddenly you've got to start adulting pretty quickly. And then that transaction between results and reward becomes a little more important than just how much you enjoy yourself. No, exactly right. And again, I, I do, however, feel that there is a greater and greater focus on culture. I do get a sense that there is a greater role uh, within corporations where companies are looking at making the workplace that much more interactive, that much more fun, that perhaps that little bit more charming, warm and friendly or not. Well, just definitely talk a couple of lessons. Uh, number one, we do. 
the old adage, culture eats strategy breakfast. Number two, post-COVID, we saw that individuals with specific roles that can be done remotely can take advantage of that. But a number of CEOs that I talked to in South Africa have made it absolutely clear they believe their organizations will get better results. They'll have less anxiety, more social engagement by bringing their people back. And as you mentioned about the super banker who got paid more than his boss, he learned to surf his culture, perform within it, and get super rewarded. So how then do companies make sure that they get the talent they want, retain the talent they want, the very best talent, in an environment where it's fairly competitive, where workplaces are working hard to become more attractive places to be employed? Is there a new secret sauce emerging here? Well, it's not new, Bruce, but believe it or not, some of our old... uh, Famous businesses in terms of the Anglos and the SA Breweries and a couple of others knew the secret sauce. And I call the secret sauce super engagement. But there's one small problem with super engagement. It costs money. And so in the age of cost cutting, in a recessionary environment, in lastminute.com management and delivery, super engagement goes by the wayside. And so certainly there are ways to get back in touch with it. Uh, but it's not something that's on the line item for the next year's budget. So how then are companies sort of, I don't know, rolling with the demands of a workforce that is looking for change without spending the money? Or are we just neglecting it as part of the the skill set that is required in managing a 21st century company? Well, I think you, in the culture environment, you've got some companies that celebrate, for example, innovation, some companies that celebrate dynamism, and those cultures tend to both attract, stimulate, and reward their individuals appropriately. And so it's more about the modernization of leadership um, that then allows people to stay, grow, be stimulated, and be rewarded, um, rather than, let's say, the hierarchical and militaristic leadership styles of yesteryear. Uh, and so we definitely in see, see in South Africa, I think, a model where individuals look for a good corporate role, over-deliver, get over-rewarded, uh, and then choose to differentiate their lives and what they do after the mid-50s, then take that decision in the mid-20s. Andrew Woodburn, Managing Director at AMROP, Woodburn Man. If we've learned anything from humanity's discovery of game-changing and potentially destructive technologies in the past is that at some point someone decides it's a race, whether it be nuclear, whether it be computers, whatever it might be, and tries to outrun everybody else. The nuclear issue was the big one, of course, and now we're seeing AI becoming potentially the greatest geopolitical weapon in history. Our signals feature this evening with uh, Professor Stephen Boyke Sidley uh, at the University of Johannesburg. It's clearly something, uh, Stephen, that's worrying you. Yes, Bruce. If we're not careful soon, we're all going to be Chinese citizens obediently voting for the CCP. Let me give you a little bit of context about what this is all about. Please. The (laughs) invention of artificial intelligence, particularly since about 2017 and then ChatGPT in 2023, um, is probably, not probably, certainly the most important technological wave that has ever been invented by humans. It will outpace the impact 
of, I don't know, fire, tools, domestication of agriculture, the wheel, the Gutenberg press, electricity, lighting, mobility, radio, the TV, internet, all of that. Why is that so? The reason that is so is because artificial intelligence is the only technology that has ever been invented by humans that can learn. That is a very, very profound statement. We do not understand what this means other than the fact that its impact is going to be exponential and much, much faster than the other technologies I mentioned. So, so that's the background to this. What transpires, and you take this all into account, is that though that country which wins the AI race will be able to have complete control over the dissemination of information and the storage of information, and I'm talking about the entire corpus of human history. Why is that? Because when one AI is smarter than another AI, it is exponentially smarter than another AI and will be able to shut off all av other avenues of inquiries easily. So there is this tremendous race amongst countries to get the best AI, which gives them a mechanism to control politics. At the root of all of this, Bruce, is a chip called the GPU, which is a kind of central processing unit, a CPU, which I'm sure your listeners have heard about, um, which is purpose-fit for artificial intelligence, and which is designed by an American company. They're in the lead, called NVIDIA, but it is manufactured yep. in, wait for it, Taiwan. Taiwan. Taiwan is the biggest and best, meanest manufacturing, uh, semiconductor manufacturing plants in the world. Nobody comes close. There are no other ones, which, of course, was all very good in, in the age of globalization. But now that everybody's deciding to go to war and, and killing each other and yelling at each other and being nasty to each other, you do not want the means of production for something as powerful as AI to be close to China. And as we all know, China has been threatening to invade Taiwan for a long time, and the threats get louder and louder. So if they were to invade Taiwan tomorrow, China would control the throttle over AI. Let me stop there before I run my mouth off and let you, let you comment. No, but it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a compelling hypothesis because here you've got NVIDIA, which has seen the share price you know, considerably rise, and I only wish I paid closer attention and acted on your piece that you wrote in early December before NVIDIA went stratospheric uh, because we'd all be a little bit wealthier by now. I trust you acted on your own guidance there. But when it comes to um, the, the, the manufacturing of microchips and these particular chips that are great for AI and then the vulnerability of Taiwan in the face of China which is watching Ukraine and the world's response to Ukraine as to whether or not it can colonize Taiwan it, it creates this this real tension doesn't it and it's a, a little bit like climate change this whole AI thing I wonder um, we know it's there but we kind of think it's something to worry about in the future and I think Intellectually, we know that that's not true. Climate change needs to be worried now, about now, as there's AI and the way in which it's governed into the future. Correct. So all of the other technologies that I've talked about, and plus you've talked about other global, global issues like climate change, have taken place over either millennia or centuries or 20 or 30 years like the Internet. AI is unfolding in real time. It is happening at, at a terrifying and, most importantly, an accelerating rate. And so we will see this unfold in the next three, four, five years. So we can't afford to look away. 
And there are strategists among governments and think tanks and universities all over the world who do scenario planning. And the horror scenario that they see in front of them is that China invades Taiwan and suddenly is in control of who has the AI. And if they're in control of that story, they win the geopolitical race and can turn humanity's history to their advantage because they control the flow of information, not only current information, past information. For instance, somebody said to me, well, how are they going to do that? Well, an AI could take control of the Internet. If an AI has control of the Internet, you can block all information that you don't want out, which China already does, and you could do that globally. So the scenario planners are terrified of this. And what happened was that Sam Altman, who is known to most of your listeners as the man who was behind ChatGPT, it's now version 4, yep. so it's called ChatGPT 4. He was the man who built that entire system with assistance from Microsoft, with funding from Microsoft. In fact, originally with, from funding with Elon Musk and later from Microsoft. He has taken a look at this thing and he has got himself, as you will excuse the expression, he's got his panties into a knot and he's saying we cannot have the world's AI dependent on manufacturing plants a couple of miles from China. And he is now pulling together a consortium of investors to put manufacturing plants up elsewhere in the world. Now, I'm going to throw a figure at you here, Bruce, which is an incomprehensible figure. He is raising, wait for it, $7 trillion to do this. Now, anybody who's in the money-raising business, as I have been at times in my life, $7 trillion is an unimaginably large number. It is bigger than most of the world's countries' yeah. GDPs. It is bigger than developed countries' total debt. It is bigger than sovereign funds. $7 trillion is Im immeasurably large. And he thinks that it is important enough to counter Chinese aspirations in AI to run around to Japan and America and Europe and Intel and Microsoft and the UAE and whoever else will give him some money so that he can put manufacturing plants all over the world. So even if China invades Taiwan, they will not get control of this technology. However, there is this this very real fear and the possibility that it manifests. And when when something like AI, which is borderless and, you know, it's the first technology that can that can truly penetrate across borders without a visa, without an invitation, without any sort of pre-invitation. I think that's what's so terrifying about this ability to take control of the Internet, to disseminate information, to control information, the flow of information, the flow of technology, the flow of capital anywhere in the world. It becomes this really horror scenario. It's impossible to answer the question, but what are the odds of AI being used essentially for control and evil. It, it feels very Orwellian, and perhaps that's why we need to be reading 1984 once a year. You know, I saw a wonderful quote um, just in the past few days researching this article. I'm, I'm sorry, I can't remember who did it. He said, in the old days, you would need an army to kill a lot of people. In these days, you need one person to kill a billion people. And whether it is that one person who has used AI to, to let loose a biological or biochemical weapon or to build a nuclear bomb, or even better, to control all the information, in which case you don't have to fire a shot or kill anybody. It is now possible. I know there are many of your listeners out there, Bruce, who, 
who have read about AI and they think to themselves, ah, this is no big deal, they'll control it, it's not a problem, it will do wonderful things like medicine, which it will in, in the fields of health and, and, and other areas. And there will be some people who use it for spam and deep fakes and all sorts of awful things, but don't be alarmist. I want to urge people to consider the following. I spend my days reading what is happening in labs around the world with AI. And I'm not talking about America. I'm talking about America and Saudi Arabia and China and Europe. And this is a technology whose capabilities are beyond understanding at this point. So much so that if an AI does something today, like ChatGPT4, its researchers cannot always understand why it did that thing. Because it's internal, the nuclear core of these AIs have to do with statistical inference, which is different than all other computer systems which work on algorithms. And that unpredictable statistical inference is the scary thing because it means they move faster, we can't understand them, they move at speeds we don't understand, and this stuff is happening over the next few years. Um, and I'm, I'm aware of the fact that I'm throwing alarmism out there, and I'm aware of the fact that I'm probably overriding yeah. the wonderful things that AI will bring us, that there are real and present dangers here. Thank you, Stephen Boyke Sidley, this evening, Professor of Practice at JBS at the University of Johannesburg. I think it's a very sobering conversation. Um, does it scare the living daylights out of you? Well, it should. I'm wondering whether I'm feeling afraid. I'm, and maybe it's that naivety. Maybe it's that sort of sense, well, surely common decency and humanity prevails. Surely. But what if it doesn't? That's what Stephen Boyke the Money Show. Personal Finance with Warren Ingram. Personal Finance brought to you by Bidvest Bank. Bidvest Bank built for your business. Uh, welcome to Warren Ingram. Warren is an executive director at Galileo Capital. He is a certified financial planner and a financial advisor. There are, I'm told, Warren, by a little birdie, the three most valuable principles in the world that if you learn nothing else about personal finance, if you learn these three principles, they will take you down the path toward being financially free one day. What are the what are principles and why do we need the principles in the world that is so overfull of financial information? Um, you know, Bruce, I think that's almost exactly why we do need them, because we're, we're kind of inundated all the time with books, you know, um, social media accounts and the like t telling us about the seven steps to this and the 12 steps to that and the seven, you know, eventually it's the, the six steps to, to insanity, I think. And, and so, you know, if, if, if people are listening to us, I'm, I think they, they can easily get confused about what to focus on and how do they decipher noise from information. Um, and, and my problem with a lot of the, the these kind of, you know, the, these, these efforts to distill everything to the, you know, the top six, uh, is, is it either oversimplifies, uh, or, or, or it makes things too complicated. And, and a lot of the time it's nonsense, you know, from, from people who just don't know better. So, so I thought, well, let, let's try and just give, give people three real big broad principles that they can focus on and if they spend a bit of time and effort on three principles they they get to cut out a lot of noise and and get to focus on on information and and the first one is 
unfortunately, you've got to go back to school for a bit. You've got to teach yourself a little bit of market history. Um, and, and the reason is we, 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 when we're going through a stock market event, whatever that market event is, whether markets are booming or crashing or drifting sideways for months and years on end and, and no one knows what's going on, it will always feel like this is the first time. Whatever the, whatever the event is that you're going through in the stock market, unless you've had a few of them in your past, you're going to think this is brand new. This has never happened before. Uh, and and you know there there is this um, it's not cheesy uh, but but there is a cliche that says you know history never repeats itself but it but it rhymes and it rhymes very often and and I think it's absolutely true in stock market events and 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 so my first comment is take a bit of time if you're interested in investing and and you kind of should be if you want to retire financially free then take a bit of time to understand how markets have worked in the past and I'm not saying you need to go and you know, get your master's in economic history. I'm just saying, start to understand how, how markets work in cycles and don't, don't listen to big predictions. We really are talking about history here. And, and the more you understand about how markets have worked in the past, amazingly, how, how, um, it will give you a lot more insight into how things are going to work in the future. And unfortunately, you'll never be able to predict what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or next year. But it should give give you a great sense of comfort that uh, you, you've kind of you understand where we are because this is another market cycle and and you'll start to to kind of figure out where you are in the in the, in the cycle and especially when when things are down and your investments are low in value and everyone around you is depressed and and you know my, my tone on the radio is is kind of bleak and and you know I feel like I'm never getting up again. If you can remind yourself that. Actually, markets turn, cycles, you know, cycles happen, and, and you know, the, the opportunities will, will arise again to make money. It gives you a great way of making yeah, I mean, pretty sensible decisions. Something really simple that you can do for yourself, and it's something I've just done in the last nanosecond, is just type in a Google search and just say S&P 500 market graph set against historical events or something along those lines. You can word it better than that. And what you get is over a long period of time, you get a wonderful graph which shows you an enormous number of ups and downs um, and a huge amount of volatility. But it also, um, if you find a good one, will show you key points along that. So 1929, there is this enormous drop in the value of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. It goes from the level of 400 down to, I can't remember the level, but it was uh, like it lost 90% of its value, so it must have gone down to 40. Um, and then there was a slow recovery, and it took 50 years, uh, or thereabouts to, uh, not 50, 30 years for the stock market to recover um, to its 1929 levels, which were overblown and overstated and, uh, and a mess. And, and you gradually get to piece together, say, okay, there was a big global event. What was that event, and what did that cause? Okay, and then there was a recovery at some point. What was the cause of that recovery? And in between all of that, there was a, the Great Depression and, and, and a war, and before that, there was a world war as well, and a, and a global um, pandemic of influenza in 1919 and somehow the world kind of muddled its way through all of this what actions did people take and it's quite a simple way you don't need to go and read an encyclopedia britannica or the equivalent but just look at a graph that has got key dates on it and i find that very useful in terms of getting a reassurance that when there is crisis generally a bit like a kidney stone it passes it hurts like hell but it passes eventually 
and and then things move again and and hopefully they move markets move upwards and 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 that's the that, that's the key in this and, and it's amazing to to think you know if you go back 50 60 years there 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 have been quite a few conflicts in the middle east that that caused huge reactions um certainly di- disrupted the oil market you know and, and that that's key to everything uh, when it comes to the price of, of moving your food or your items across the world, you know, oil is really important in that. And, and then we think about the, the, the U.S. in conflict with, with Russia. You know, that might feel new to a lot of people, but, but gee, that, that's happened just was, it was called the Soviet Union before it was called Russia. And, you know, we, we kind of got, but kind of got to the brink of, of some pretty big wars around that. So, so whatever you're feeling now and however it seems to you now, this has happened before and, and somehow markets work their way through that. And, and I think a bit of history makes an enormous difference to, to giving you context. And, and then you can apply it to your own investments. Then you can say, well, gee, I'm, I'm down 10%. You know, and, and all of this stuff has happened in the world. And if I look at that graph that Bruce has spoken about, you know, there have been times when the market's down 40%. Well, okay, 10% is not so bad. Maybe I'll just ride it out and, you know, and, and not panic and sell everything and, and hide all my money, money under a big rock. And, and so for me, history, history is an incredible teacher in this. And, and what I really like is it removes all the bias. It removes all the, you know, in, you know, the prognostication from someone who wants to sell you a property in Mauritius or they want to sell you a trust in Guernsey or whatever it is. You're learning for yourself about what's going to happen and how you can do things for for yourself. So, so for me, uh, principle one: learn a bit of history and 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 take a bit of time. And as Bruce says, it it, it doesn't need to be a, a, a you know a big academic thing. A bit, a bit of reading, uh, a few graphs, a bit of history, and 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 you're done. And then every now and then, when you panic, go and remind yourself. Go back to those things and and set your mind at ease. Or if you've never seen this before, and and this truly is a once in a lifetime event, then hopefully we'll have something clever to tell you on on the next show when that happens. Let's just go back fifteen years because that's within reasonable memory. All right. So there's a little thing that's called the global financial crisis. It hits in two thousand and eight, and by the time the market bottoms out in sort of January, February, this time of year, basically, in two thousand and nine. What was the level that the S and P five hundred had sunk to? Uh, I'm absolutely it's not, it's not a rhetorical question, and and that and that doesn't matter. But the, but the S and P five hundred had collapsed, had collapsed to six hundred and seventy six. That was on the 9th of March two thousand and nine, and then it had this most wonderful recovery until twenty ten. Then suddenly there was the May 2010 flash crash. And in that moment, it felt like the world was coming to an end. But that was over in about three or four months. And then things recovered quite nicely. And then there was a European sovereign debt crisis in August 2011. Markets crashed again. And then you had Barack Obama's second term begin in, uh, in 2013. And markets continued recovering a zigzaggy pattern. But by the time you get to the 26th of August 2014, so just what, um, you know, five years after market bottomed out at 676, the S&P 500 closed above 2000 for the first time in 2014. And I'm going to save you all the other rows and ructions and Armageddon type uh, issues. But when you look at it today, there's the S&P 500. It's dropped to just below 5,000 today. But the market is up, you know, it is more than doubled 
uh, since 2014. It's gone up. It's 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 gone up considerably since 2014, despite the fact that stock markets in China crashed in 2016, and Donald Trump was elected as president, and then you had a near revolution in the United States when he couldn't accept that he was, uh, you know, losing his job, and then you had the COVID crisis, and and and. I mean, yes, there's ten thousand reasons not to invest, um, and. You've got to understand the history to know that these things pass. Absolutely. Good good advice, Warren. I've been pontificating a bit. Um, your favorite one, though, I mean, so learn a bit of history and do it simply and realize that stuff happens in the world and get over it. Diversification is one of your favorites. And 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 so uh, I had I had a f- phone call from a financial planner today, a reasonably experienced one, saying, you know, how, how do I tell my client to sell their hedge fund, which has gone up? You know, eleven percent between eleven to eleven to sixteen percent every single year for the last five years. So, so and no one year has gone down. It's just gone up year after year, every single year with very little volatility. And and he's saying to me, you know, hand on heart, I, I, I'm not sure I can convince uh, my clients to do this w- w- in good conscience. And and I said to him, so you're, you're telling me that you've, you found an investment that's not lost money when we've had a pandemic, when we've had interest rates going through the roof in, in, in the US uh, and, and everything else that's happened along the way, this thing has only gone up year after year in double digits in dollars. Uh, and you're wondering why, why you should tell your client to get out. And, and, and the answer is no investment goes up predictably in double digits year after year after year with all of those things that go on. What happens is uh, that that sounds like Bernie Madoff. That that sounds that sounds to me like a major <laughs> danger signal. So so if you're not going to tell your clients to move that money, then please do one thing, which is to tell them to sell a solid chunk of it and buy an index and 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 get it spread out from from that one hedge fund. And and you know uh, if if the if the hedge fund continues to defy gravity and every other principle in finance. Then, uh, th- then they will not thank you for selling the portion, but if it does what I suspect it might do and it implodes, they will be very grateful that you, that you moved a chunk. And that spreading of your assets away from the sure bets, away from the things that everyone else is buying and, and, and you, you feel bad for, for either not buying or, or not holding, uh, you know, into the future. Uh, I, I feel diversification is a great antidote to all the uncertainty all the what ifs that that face us all the time as investors and so if you're sitting there and you've read a bit of history and you go I feel like I'm missing out still you know then by all means buy a little bit if you really must but whatever the thing is that that's catching everyone's attention the bright shiny object but but make sure you've spread your money across different geographies different markets and most importantly as well across time you know if you've got a lump sum to invest spread it out over time if you need to draw lots of money out of your investments to to do to do some big expense again buy buy out of those or sell out of those over time but make sure you've got proper diversification across all of the assets all of the geographies and then sit back and watch and and yes you might miss out sometime but but over a long period of time you'll win a lot more than those who've taken the big bet and maybe have done incredibly well over a short period of time but watch them lose uh, over the longer term because the big bets never pay off year after year after year so diversification absolutely it's a hard conversation because the person sitting opposite you is going but i'm winning but i'm winning why would i want to stop winning and it's a it's a tough call. It really is, uh, because next year 
when the, it's gone up another 15%, they look at you as if you're stupid. Um, what is the final one? So we've got learn a bit of history, do diversification, and what is the magical rule number three here? The, the, the magical rule number three is when you start and you, you take everything we've said and you take it on board and you start saving and you start investing, uh, you, you know, especially early on in your career, it feels like you're going nowhere. You, you know, you, you've, if 10, 10% of the thousand rand is not a lot of money. Uh, and and so the, the the point is not to stop. The point is to carry on. And as your salary rises, as your income rises, make sure you increase your savings faster than your salary is rising to make sure that your expenses are not the thing that's rising as fast as your salary. So create that gap between your income and your expenses. If you can't do it this year, make sure you can do it next year. And what you find over time is – it takes an incredibly long time for us to save our first million. And it doesn't matter whether it's your first million US dollars, your first million rands. It doesn't matter what the currency is. But, but saving your first million takes a long time. The second million is much quicker if you keep saving more and more and more because then you get the compounding, which really helps you, and you keep adding to it. And, and I think that that's the thing. People get so depressed and despondent because they feel like they're not adding to the money. But, but just get that gap every year. Just keep, keep going. Keep saving. Keep saving a bit more than you did the year before. Keep accelerating. And then call us to say thank you in about 10 or 12 years' time when you're sitting on a few million and you've done the diversification and you've studied your history because that's what's going to happen. These are basic principles that you can focus on and you can ignore pretty much everything else that people are screaming at you about why you should be excited or why you should be panicking. Such good. So good. So good. Now listen, a quick question from a mouse. I don't know their name because they're a nonny mouse. But anyway, I bought three investment properties over the years with a view of using them to provide me with an income in retirement and have a pension fund through my employer. There are four years to go till I reach 60, which is the retirement age at work. I'd like to have more capital easily available in my portfolio because I'd like to take a few holidays. I also need money available in case of my medical expenses come up and I need to cover that out of pocket. Should I sell down my property portfolio gradually? Let's say one every three years or do I sell them all in one go when is the best time to do this in retirement or now my goodness me you've got three minutes to go through a very complicated question and and, and I must say uh, I, I'm, I am a bit stumped I mean I did you did give me this before the time and I thought about it and I think I know what I'm doing but but I don't have a straight answer for this one I, 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 my, my sense is these are chunky investments you know it's it's almost as if you've, you own you know, a heck of a lot of money and you've allocated them to only three individual shares. And, and, you know, we don't know if they've done well or not for you, but, but, but the point here is diversification. You know, it, it is a core principle and, and you are getting to the point where, where at retirement you need income, but you also need to protect the capital that you've got. So, so my, 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 my core principle here would be, yes, you should diversify and yes, you should do it over time. In other words, I'm, I'm not convinced that you sell all the properties in, in one go. I, I think you do sell them in, in batches, you know, one, one now and, and, and I'm not sure if it's every three years. I, I, I don't know that. I think, I think it'll depend on where the property is, what kind of property and all those things. But, but I do think if you go back to the, the principle, the principle would be diversification. Too much money in, in properties is not diversification and you do need to sell them. So, so please do that in batches over, over time. And when's the best time to do it? I think you, you start now uh, and, and, and then just be really careful of tax. You know, 
Tax is a big issue, and, and you know, if your income is going to be very low in retirement, then selling more of the properties in retirement might be very tax efficient. So that's worth con- considering. Uh, but, but equally, you don't want at retirement a chunk of your money sitting in two out of the three properties, and then the property market implodes for the next decade, and and you lose a, a, a bunch of your retirement money. So, so I think be be very aware of the dynamic of the properties that you own. You know, have they done well in the past uh, past few years, or or have they imploded? Are they really cheap? And then, then maybe you sell a bit more slowly. But but, but I think it's uh, you know to to Anani Mouse. I think that's a, it's a heck of a question. You, you probably, I think it's the first time in twelve or thirteen years, Bruce, doing this that that, that I'm stumped, and I have to say I'm stumped. <laughs> Mouse, well done to you. I'm delighted that you stumped Warren. And it is if, if you'd like to apply your mind to it further, Warren, and, and come up with some some deeper thoughts in in the weeks ahead. Um, I, I think it's a it's a, certainly a worthwhile one. A lot of people, and uh, especially when we were doing the feature of other people's money, we were talking to well known people. The number of South Africans who like property because they like the feel of bricks and mortar. They like the fact that they can see it. They like the fact that there's a, an income stream that comes in that pays off the bond. It feels like you're getting an investment for nothing. There's so many factors to consider when it comes to property investment and um, high maintenance costs and tenant risk and all sorts of things, interest rate risk, all these sorts of things. Perhaps, uh, Warren, in a a couple of weeks, uh, certainly in some points in the not-too-distant future, maybe just a focus on let's drill into the property sector, which you've not been a fan of for a long period of time uh, for many reasons, Um, but there are lots of people who like it. So maybe the ins and outs of a property investment tale, I think that could be fun. I think it's a, 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 a great idea, and let's see if we can if we can help help people and maybe ruffle some feathers along the way of the property, the property oh. gurus. We love to ruffle feathers. Warren Ingram, who is a director at Galileo Capital, he is of course a certified financial planner and a financial advisor. Plus, plus because he's so busy, a regular contributor to the Money Show on a Tuesday evening.